Well, praise God. Good morning, everybody. Huge welcome to everyone watching online right now, everyone in Alma, and to those of you here in Mount Pleasant. What a year! Didn't see that one coming, did we? Oh my goodness me, that was quite something. But thankfully, right now, of course, we all know that when it struck midnight on the 31st of December, all of that just goes away magically, right? Yeah. Hey, anyone here grateful for the faithfulness of our God? No matter the date, no matter the circumstances, uh, I am so, so thankful for His goodness and His faithfulness to every single one of us. If you're here for the first time, either in person or in Alma or watching online, we are really thrilled that you're here. And actually, you're here at a really great time because we're about to launch a brand new series for the next three weeks called Over It. And what I would like to highlight is honestly just some places in your life and in my life where I am absolutely convinced that you need the help of God. You just need the help of God. And what's exciting is my expectation of my father, knowing his goodness and his faithfulness, is that he he actually loves to help us. In fact, that's a name given to the Holy Spirit. He's called the helper. And so uh, uh, next week, what we're going to look at is this idea of getting over uh, hiding in our lives. It's, It's actually a coping mechanism that many of us use in life where when stress comes your way or uh, even just other people, what we tend to do is we tend to not really reveal ourselves. Uh, We're not actually living out who we are in Christ. Uh, The following week after that, uh, we're going to look at this idea of complaint. If you look at last year, oh my goodness, you know, the argument could easily be made, but boy, didn't we have plenty of reasons to complain. Plenty of reasons. And what happens is, and honestly, sometimes there's a lack of self-awareness because it becomes a mode of operation, and we don't actually realize that we're, we're kind of doing damage. Because I know you know this, but you may not be aware of it if it's you, but nobody here wants to hang out with someone who complains all the time. And it actually does tremendous damage to relationships and careers and friendships and relationships with children or grandchildren or spouses. It does tremendous damage. And sometimes you don't even know it, but what's pouring out of you is pessimism and cynicism and this negativity is coming out of you and complaint. And God's saying, look, I've actually got a different plan for you. And so I really am excited and hopeful to see what the Lord does in all of our lives. I feel as though even today, it's like maybe the analogy of coming to church with a backpack on, and it's just loaded up with a bunch of rocks. And here's where the helper comes in. He's like, let's just take that off your back. And why don't you leave that with me? Uh, I I think I can help you with this, because I don't want you walking around carrying that stuff and and the weight and the burden of that anymore. That's the goodness of our God. That is His goodness. So, can't wait for the Lord to show up and change how we think and how we function. Today, what I want to look at is a a habit that I believe every single person, hearing the sound of my voice, has engaged in, myself included, every single one of us, Uh, and it it doesn't help us at all. And what I've done here is I've just written some, like, super brief, uh, just fictional scenarios, and I want you to play detective right now and see if you can kind of figure out what this habit is, uh, and maybe you might even say, oh, yep, been there, done that. Okay, a few little fictional scenarios here. Hi there, how many steps have you walked today? Oh, I walked 10,000 steps. Cool, I walked 12,000. Do you have kids? No, we don't have any kids. Oh, we have four. We have four children. Well, how'd you do in that test? How'd it go? I got a B plus. Oh, really? I got an A. What year is your car? You, you must like driving older cars. Is that, is that what you like doing? 
<laughs> oh, actually, my son was first in class this year. He's going to make varsity. Yep. Oh, in my field, oh, you can make a lot of money doing what I do. Yeah, a lot, lot of money to be made in my field. Well, you know, it's a pity you didn't stick with that. You could have been a real success. Okay, so a few passive-aggressive little statements in there, to say the least, right? And what I want to maybe highlight, what I'm hoping is bubbling up, is, 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 a, is a little thread that's going through there, and it would be the idea of comparison. You do that, but uh, not me. I, I, do, I do a little bit better than you. This idea of comparison, I'm convinced every one of us have simply made comparisons of ourselves to other people throughout the course of our lives. What if I told you that this year could be a year where you engage in life in a way that it simply didn't matter how you measured up to another person? What if you actually had a year like that? Some people are convinced that Christianity is nothing more than a morbid bunch of thou shalt not do all of those things. And usually they're all the things that you want to shalt do. I think that is a painful way to look at Christianity and following Christ. Yes, there are things that God doesn't want me to be a part of, but I think Christianity is just overflowing with thou shalts. There's a whole bunch of stuff that God wants you and I to be a part of in our lives. Christianity flings wide open the door in your life to all kinds of activity and laughter and blessings and serving and fun and getting together and relaxing and resting and energy and all kinds of way where you play and have a great time in your life. Classic movie, Chariots of Fire. The main character in there is a gentleman by the name of Eric Lydell, and he's a Welshman, tremendous runner, wonderful, wonderful athlete, representing his country. But he is a devout, devout Christian, loves God, and probably comes from a very kind of a holiness background, you know, a lot of rules, maybe even bordering on a bit of legalism, but he just is very devout. And he wants to represent his country, his country as, as, a, as an athlete, as a runner, but he's getting all kinds of pressure from the church that they're telling him that he shouldn't run on the Sabbath. On a Sunday, it would be wrong for him to run. And he takes it really seriously in the movie because uh, he's, he's so devout. He just loves the Lord. And he prays and he thinks, and you can see he really wrestles with this because he loves to run. And there's this moment in the movie where after all of the inner turmoil, he finally comes to a conclusion. Listen to what he says. To those in particular who would say that Christianity is nothing more than a bunch of don't do that. Here's what he says. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I like that. You see, this year, I hope you just have a blast. I hope this year is so much stinking fun for you. I hope you read great books. I hope you make new friends that are the best friends you've ever had. I hope you watch great movies that cause you to think. I hope you bake cakes and eat them. I hope you run and walk and skip and jump and laugh and have such a blast this year. And in doing all of those things, that you would have this great awareness that as you do those things, that your father delights in the fact that you would do those things, particularly that you would do them without comparison to how anyone else does those things. That you would simply be free to enjoy life knowing the delight of your father. 
knowing that your identity and your value and your worth is simply founded in the fact that you are his son or you are his daughter. When I watch my children do the most normal things, sometimes my boys are just cracking up in the corner in the, in the living room. They're just laughing their heads off. I mean, cackling, the pair of them. And I just, I'm just in the corner with this grin on my face, just watching them laugh. My daughter, she can talk. She can talk. She's a chatterbox, and she can tell stories, and her eyes get lit up, and she gets full of wonder. I don't know where she gets it from. She's a talker. I'm a talker, and she gets talking, and she gets going, and sometimes, honestly, I click out of what she's even talking to me about because it is so delightful to me to just see her full of all of that joy and all of that wonder. It's wonderful, and I hope you do these things completely and utterly free of, yeah, but how does someone else do those things? What do they look like? How do they engage? I actually don't have a problem with comparison. Comparison, developmentally, is very good for children. It helps them to learn, like re really small kiddos. It's a good thing for them. Comparison is good uh, when it comes to all kinds of sports. I, I enjoy many different kinds of sports. The Olympics would be no fun if they didn't time the race and say who came first, second, or third. That would be really boring, right? So there's a time and a place for a comparison, and yet comparison can utterly destroy people's lives. In 2015, in the mixed martial arts sport, a pretty rough sport, there's a lady by the name of Ronda Rousey, and her entire career had been phenomenal. She had dominated her weight class, and she wanted to retire never having lost a fight. And she walked into uh, that fight with a lady by the name of Holly Holmes, and you could tell immediately she just wasn't herself. Uh, she never, ever lost a fight, and in the second round, she was knocked unconscious, and nobody saw it coming. Uh, she, I mean, that was, she was really favored to win the fight, as she had every other fight in her entire life. Shocking what she said afterwards. Listen to her words. I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself, and, and that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I even do anymore? And pardon the expletives here. No one gives a bleep about me anymore without this. She was suicidal, depressed, because she lost a fight. Now, that's high-level sports. When you take any degree of that kind of comparison and you insert that into our normal lives on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm telling you right now, it can do tremendous damage to your soul. Tremendous. When you value and you understand your sense of your value in comparison to other people, we may initially learn as young little kiddos uh, by a sense of comparison, and that's a good thing. But when I start to compare myself with another person, what happens is my ego gets involved. And my ego wants me to be exalted over other people. My ego feels like, like I'm going to be diminished if anyone else gets lifted up in any way in my life. My ego starts to whisper to me about things like envy and jealousy. It starts to introduce these things into my life. And then what happens is I become very competitive, and so do you. When I compare myself to other people, I'm telling you right now, it is a lose-lose situation. Because if you compare yourself and you feel like in whatever the scenario is, you feel like, man, I came out on top. I was better. I was taller. I was stronger. I was faster. I was quicker. Whatever it is, here's what happens. Immediately, arrogance and pride floods your life. That's a lose. 
The second lose is if and when you compare yourself to anyone else in any other scenario and you genuinely feel afterwards like, man, I came out on the bottom. They're better than me. You immediately derive a sense of value that you would now say to yourself, well, I'm useless and I'm worthless. That's called a lose-lose situation. Right now, mass confession. Everyone online, everyone in Alma, and everyone right here in Mount Pleasant, I'm going to run through a few quick categories here. And if you've ever compared yourself in any of the following ways, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to raise your hand. If you've ever compared yourself on the basis of looks, she's cuter than me, he's taller than me, or hair, or teeth, or physique, or anything like that, or intelligence, your grades, or your GPA, if you've ever compared your career to someone else's career, ever compared your house to someone else's house, if you've ever compared your car to someone else's car, or your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, or your spouse to someone else's, or your children to someone else's children, or to how you think you are as a parent to other people's parenting, or even to how you consider yourself as spiritual, like maybe I'm more spiritual or they're less spiritual, if you've ever done that to anyone else, I want you to raise your hand really high right now. That's what I thought. It's kind of like a sickness around here. How many of you would say, well, yes, I've certainly done that, but I've done it better than other people? It's toxic stuff. Let me show you four mini pictures from the Bible. The first is siblings. Not a surprise, right? Siblings. We meet two brothers. They're comparing themselves to each other. The first, uh, two, two gentlemen by the name of Cain and Abel. They bring an offering to God, and Abel brings his firstborn of his flocks to God. Abel is actually being obedient to God, and what's happening in Abel's life is God is actually creating generosity in him. He's becoming a generous person. The text does not say that Cain does the same. It says that he just brings some fruit. He doesn't bring his first fruits. So something's immediately gone wrong here. Cain is actually not being obedient to God. And it says, as a result, that God does not look favorably upon his offering. But he does look favorably on Abel's. Immediately, Cain sees his comparison. And there's two words to describe Cain. It says he's downcast and he's angry. His face is downcast. And it's very clear that Abel is just being obedient and he's just being generous. The implication for Cain is that he's actually being disobedient, and his actions, because he did give something to God, is kind of like just this begrudging, well, if I have to, I feel obliged, and I'll drag my heels, and I'll give God this thing. It's kind of the implication there. So Cain is actually shutting himself off from God. Cain is shutting himself off from becoming a generous person. Cain sees a joy in Abel, and it grates him that Abel would be filled with joy. And it's so interesting what Cain doesn't do. Cain, he doesn't get angry at himself. Cain at no stage says, I knew better. God told me how to be obedient to him. Come on, Cain. You know what to do. Step up to the place. He doesn't do that at all. Cain doesn't even get angry at God. He just gets angry at his brother. He thinks, you know what? If Abel wasn't around then I wouldn't feel the way I feel right now. If Abel wasn't here, I wouldn't feel this pain. Comparison. So God speaks to Cain. Genesis chapter 4. 
The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? So everything God has said here is question, question, question. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but, it, but you must rule over it. So why are you angry? Why are you downcast? Oh, if you do the right thing, you, won't you know that you're going to be accepted? There's questions there. But notice what happens. Cain doesn't answer any of the questions. What happens to Cain in this moment is he's actually dehumanizing his brother. He doesn't see him as a brother. He doesn't see him as a person. He now sees him just as a problem. The real question that God is posing, and it's a really good question for you when you begin to enter into comparison in your life, is this. What do I really want? When you begin to compare, I would challenge you to ask yourself that question. One author put it like this. See, what Cain wanted in his best self, what I mean by that is, have you ever had a moment in your life where you've looked at the way you are and actually said of yourself, you know what, there's actually a better me than that. I can, I can step up to the task in a better way. There's more to me than that. And what Cain comes to the point is looking at himself and saying, in his best self, in his truest self, in who God had actually made him to be, it was actually to be a generous person. That's what God wanted to create in him. It would be a person who truly trusted God. It would be a person who would say, no, I want to love my brother. And not only that, I actually want to be a good brother to him. I want to be that kind of guy. But you see, Cain doesn't ask those questions. And not only does he not ask those questions, he doesn't answer any of the questions that God asks of him. We're that way. In our best selves, we'd like to think that we would want what is noble and right. We'd like to think, man, maybe I could be a generous person. Maybe God create generosity in me. But over time, what happens is we just stop asking that of ourselves. We, we, like, we just get over that. I'm going to quit trying to be the best that God has called me to be. We stop asking the question, and it's very fascinating. The text says the three questions, Cain answers none of them. The very next verse after the three questions, here's what he says. Now Cain said to his brother, so he doesn't answer the question, Abel. Oh, look at these words, church. Let's go out to the field. Now there is a world of hurt in that little statement. A world of hurt. For the first time, Cain, that we know of, Cain is tricking his brother. It's the first time ever Cain's actually going to deceive his brother. He has to say a sentence to him that he's probably said before, hey, let's go out to the field. But for the first time, he has to pretend that it means something else. For the first time, he has to teach. Remember it says his face was downcast and his disposition was angry? For the first time in Cain's life, he has to teach his face to put on a little smile and to say something with a tone that would reflect that there's something very innocent, but actually there's something horribly dangerous. The rest of verse 8, while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The theme of deception and falsehood and comparison it's all over the Bible. It's throughout the human race. How come you have what I want? Two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, comparison, estranged from each other. Another generation comes, two more brothers, Jacob and Esau, comparison, estranged from each other. 
Genesis chapter 25, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, that's the dad, who had a taste for wild game, who did he love? Well, he loved Esau. But Rebekah, that's the mom, she loved Jacob. I'm telling you right now, there's a world of hurt in that little description right there. Parents, we do this. I've done this. We don't mean to do this, but we do this. She's the athletic one. He's the smart one. Why would, we, why would we out loud in front of our children define them and identify them in comparison to the other child in terms of how one is skillful and one is not? That kills children. We've done that. I don't think we mean to do that in a vindictive way, but we do that. And now if you have a kid who's like, well, I'm a bit more clumsy, they walk away thinking, well, I'm not the athletic one or I'm not the smart one. I don't get the grades. We're killing them. Second little mini picture. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Do you know how Israel picked their first king? Comparison. Good-looking guy, he's tall, will make you king. Now, there's nothing wrong with being tall, and there's nothing wrong with being a good-looking guy, but if that's your basis for national leadership, you might want to take a look at that. David enters into the picture. Saul's now the king. David is this younger man who enters the military and becomes a general for Saul, the king. They go off into battle together. They have tremendous victory. And in the scripture I'm about to read to you, they return after tremendous military success. And there's a party and everyone comes out in the streets and there's music and dancing. Look at the comparison. The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang. You ready for it? Saul has slain his thousands, but David... His tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. Sound like anybody? This refrain displeased him greatly. Saul, why are you so angry? He begins to dehumanize David. He's not a person anymore. He's just pain. He's just a problem. That's all he represents. Saul, what do you want? And he actually answers that question in the very next verse. They have credited David with tens of thousands. He's ticked, he thought, but me with only thousands. Now, here's a bit of a leap from that little song. What more can he get but the entire kingdom? Slight leap from one song to David's going to take over the, the, the throne. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And that is not a nice phrase. Comparison created jealousy. I don't see a person that I love. I don't see a person that's loyal to me in my military. I just see somebody who causes me pain. Now I'm going to lose the kingdom. And do you know what actually happens to Saul? He actually says, I'm going to go. He does what Cain does. I'm going to chase this guy down. I'm going to bring him out to a field and I'm going to kill him. And actually, he tries to do it again and again. Actually, for years of Saul's life and for years of David's life, they were, he was chasing him to just kill him. I have to kill this man. He dehumanizes him. Why? One song, comparison. And do you know what ends up happening to Saul, who thinks he's going to lose the kingdom? He loses himself. And then he actually loses the kingdom as well. 
And it was his own doing. He self-sabotaged himself. The very thing he was trying to avoid. But that's not the kingdom of God. It's not how it works. Third mini picture. The first two are fairly negative. This one actually is incredibly healthy. A great lesson on how to handle comparison. John the Baptist. He is an incredible ministry. John the Baptist has his disciples and Jesus has his disciples. John the Baptist is making way for the Messiah. And when he finally sees Jesus, this is what John the Baptist says in John chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now here comes the comparison. John's disciples come up to John. And here's what they say in chapter 3. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everybody's going to him. So John's disciples are saying to John, hey, do you remember, John? We used to be numero uno. We used to be number one. We used to be the most prominent. Everybody used to come to us, see us. Now Jesus the guy that you baptized, now he's doing what you do and he's baptizing other people and people are going to go see him. You see, John, the more important that you are, the more important that we are because we're your disciples. And if you're less important, well, maybe we're becoming less important. So we need you to do something about this because we've got to recapture a little bit of market share, John. Things are getting out of control. And for once, we don't get a picture of the pain of comparison. We actually see somebody deal with comparison in, in the most healthy way. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Oh, I want you to hear that. God says to you today, I'll give you what I give you, and that's what you get. You yourself can testify that I already said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. Look at this. He must become greater and I must become less. There's the kingdom of God. I'm happy to elevate another. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be the best. I don't have to be the most prominent. I don't have to be the richest or the fastest or the tallest or the best looking or the best house or best car or best vacation. I don't have to have those things. And I'll celebrate others. My identity. And we look at these examples. Look, my identity is not going to be based on looks just because you're tall or handsome. My, my identity is not going to be based on your, your military success compared to mine. My identity, or I'm not going to become jealous because you're being obedient to God and I'm not being obedient to God. It's okay if you make more money than me. It's okay if you had an amazing vacation. I'm glad for you. I'm happy for you. It's okay if you do better than I do in an exam or a test. And when I say it like that, doesn't it just sound a little bit embarrassing? Like I'm going to be riddled with envy and jealousy and this competitiveness that dehumanizes another person because they are, I got a C plus and they got a B minus. I mean, it sounds petty, but that's in us. I'm not as good as them. I'll never be like them. They have more. I wish I was more like her. I wish I was more like him. I'm just telling you right now, it's not the way God wants you to live your life. 
And that cannot be the way that we go through life comprehending the value that God has placed on us. John says, I want to go through my life like I'm the best man at a wedding. How about that? Like, imagine being the maid of honor at the wedding. We all know when you go to a wedding, no one's really interested in the best man. It's about the bride and groom. Actually, it's just about the bride, really, isn't it? (laughs) Nobody's coming to see the best man or the maid of honor. We gladly live our lives elevating others and pouring into others and investing into other people's lives and serving other people, not troubled about my own station or the attention that I get or the pats on the back that I get or how people think or what I think they think about me or self-importance or all of that stuff. And I'm telling you, there's actually freedom in that for you. I have an older brother. His name is Paul. Paul and I are very close in age. Uh, And I have a younger sister, but she's uh, about seven years younger than me. So growing up as a little kid, I compared myself to my brother. I probably didn't compare myself as much to my little sister because she was just this little tiny thing. But Paul and I... You know, we played football, he won. We'd have a race. He was faster than me. We used to kill each other. I mean, we used to fight when we were small. We used to really throw down. We'd try to hurt each other. We'd be punching and kicking. And I'd, I'd, get, a few, I'd get a few knocks in there, but he'd kick my butt. He was bigger than me. And now we're all grown up, and he's still taller than me, but I'm working on that. It's taken me a little bit of time, a bit of growing up, a bit of maturing. I'm 45 years of age. I look at my brother now. He pastors a church in the west coast of Ireland. He's an amazing leader. I mean, great preacher. You guys totally got the short end of the stick. You should have hired him. I see him with his family, with his kids. I see him with his, his wife. I see him with his, just in life. I look at him. I've just got to this point in my life where I'm like, I I watch him and I'm like, go for it, Paul. I mean, have at it, man. I I mean, I'm just going to be in your corner, behind you all the way, praying for you and, and celebrating you. Man, way to go, way to affect the kingdom of God, way to bring people to Christ, way to love your family, way to lead, way to, I want to be that guy behind him all the way. I'm done, I'm done doing this. You're half an inch taller than me, you're faster than me, you're, I, I, there's no freedom in that for me. It's taken me a bit of time. Fourth and final little mini picture. Jesus is meeting with Peter and Peter has messed up pretty bad. This is the moment kind of after the abandonment and the betrayal and the cock has crowed and it says he wept bitterly and he's gone back to fishing. I mean, it's just a picture of defeat. And Jesus is at the beach and he's, he says, come on, let's have some breakfast together. And they're, have, they're having some fish at a fire. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture where Jesus is trying to reach into Peter and to, to heal him and to help him. He's getting all the broken pieces. He said, Peter, I'm going to put you back together. And, oh, man, I've got stuff for you to do. And he's reinstating him, and he's healing and helping. Uh, And, you know, Peter, you're going to feed my sheep. Yes, Jesus. Yeah, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to feed my sheep. Yes, Jesus. 
And then it gets actually quite sobering at the end of the conversation. Jesus says something very, very serious to him. He says, you know, Peter, at the end, you're going to give your life for me. It's not going to be very pleasant. And Peter's listening to this. I'm going to give my life for you. Yeah, you're going to give me your life. And the weirdest thing happens in that moment, like really weird. The scripture says, John walks by. It's one of the other disciples. I mean, super serious conversation. And then it says, John walks by. And look at what it says in chapter 21. When Peter saw him, meaning John, he asked, meaning Jesus, Lord, what about him? Just heard the news about the sobering end of his life. He's going to give his life for the kingdom of God. John walks by. Wait a second, Jesus. What about John? What about John? I need to know about John. Now, there's an unusual dynamic between Peter and John. In the gospel that John wrote, John gives himself a nickname. John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. That's kind of cool, right? He's got a big head, maybe in a really good way, because Jesus really loved him. I I should go through my life, and so should you, calling yourself that. You are the disciple that Jesus loved. But John writes it about himself. Nobody says that about Peter in the Bible. It doesn't give him that description. At the Last Supper, they're seated in this, uh, they're on the floor, they're seated. It says John actually places his chest, his head on on Jesus' chest. He's sitting right beside Jesus. And actually, as you look at it, the layout, John's actually in what's known as the seat of honor in, a, in, a, in an honor-shame culture. John is in the, in the seat of honor. Peter's not in that place. At the resurrection, it's kind of funny, in the Gospel of John, <laughs> guess who wrote that? It says that they, he and John and Peter, they, they both had a race to the tomb. Right? They get this news, and they go running. Somebody told him, and somebody actually wrote this down. Somebody actually kept track of this, that John got there first. It says it in the Bible. They're having a race. Who's going to make it to the tomb first? John outruns Peter, and John makes sure that it's in the Bible. Then after the resurrection, we get to the scripture that we're looking at right now, and they go fishing, and it's defeat, and, and then they see this figure on the beach, and it explicitly says here, John says... Uh, to Peter, it's the Lord. In other words, Peter can't see who it is. Peter doesn't recognize Jesus, but John recognizes Jesus. And John tells Peter, I'm going to put you straight. I'm telling you who it is. It's the Lord. But Peter doesn't get it, but John does get it. Over and over again, it's John, John, John every time. And Peter gets this difficult news from Jesus. At the end of your life, you're going to give your life to me. All that Peter can say as John walks by, well, what about him? It's always John. John, John, every time. There's this thing between us. He's, a, he's your favorite. He's the disciple that you love. It's always about John. Now, I want you to see how serious Jesus is about comparison. John chapter 21. Here's what Jesus addresses in Peter's heart. Jesus answered, If I want John to remain alive until I return. Now, can I ask you this question? Has Jesus returned yet? No, he has not. If I want John to remain alive for the next several millennia, what's it to you? 
You must follow me. I'm telling you right now. Those are hard, firm, and loving words. What's it to you? The next time that you find yourself going back into this habit of comparison, I want you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit firmly, strongly speaking to you, lovingly speaking to you. I want you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. What's it to you? I'll give you what I give you. What's it to you if he's taller or you think she's more beautiful or if they have more money or if his education is better or you want his job or you think their life is nicer than your life? What's it to you? I've given you what I've given you. How about this? You just follow me. And I'm telling you, church, there's actually freedom in that for you. I want you to start this year by eradicating the junk of comparison in your life and asking the Holy Spirit to be your helper. By the way, Jesus knows all about it. Envy, right at the tail end of his ministry. This is from the story of Jesus. This is what it says. Pilate saw that it was out of envy that the Pharisees had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate could see it. Envy, comparison, is what killed Jesus. We're not getting the attention anymore. They're going to him. They're not coming to us. He's taking our place. They're not cheering us on. We're not getting the respect that we're due. You know what we're going to do? Hey, you, you want to go out to the field? Let's kill him. He's not a person. He's pain. He's a problem. And I want you to hear strongly from the Lord on this today. What is it to you? This is what I've given you. Look at me. Follow me all the days of your life. So what if somebody else is taller or stronger or richer or smarter? What's it to you? Your job is simply to follow me. And I want you in this moment to invite you into a moment of self-examination. To say, God, is this, has this taken root in my life? Is this going to be the way that I play out 2021? If you keep your eyes on other people, I tell you right now, you're going to be miserable. And I don't want that for you this year. This year, I want you to run. I want you to have a blast. I want you to read great books and make amazing friends and bake cakes and eat them. I want you to skip and dance and run and travel and go places. I want you to belly laugh. I want you to have so much fun. I want you to have a blast. And I want you to experience the delight of your father looking down on you as you experience life in that way without comparison to any other person. The Lord wants to set you free from all of that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for speaking to us right out of the gate the beginning of this year. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, no matter the circumstances. Lord, would you please set us free from looking over our shoulder, from looking at our neighbor's grass, from this self-imposed measuring up that is attached to so many parts of our lives. And Lord, we just actually, we repent, God, because that's not what you've called us to do. We are guilty of attaching value and worth and identity from this lifeless habit. And we pray that you would forgive us 
for failing to derive our value from what you have communicated in your word to be true of us, that we are your sons and that we are your daughters. So, Father, would you please forgive us and set us free from this old habit and help us, God. Today, we want to stop looking at ourselves and others. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. And together, the whole church said, Amen. Love you, church. God bless.